Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. How many of you are re-gifters? Good. Good. That's good. Just want to make sure. I think I've told this story before, but we had a we once had a gift certificate or a gift card in our drawer, and uh, Katie, I think it was for Dunkin' Donuts or something like that. And Katie had used most of it and put it back in the drawer, and so I went and gave it to somebody, thinking that it was a new <laughs> gift card. And they, they called me like two days later and like, you gave me a gift card for $1.83. Is that... What's it? So, it doesn't always work, but most of the time it's good. Good idea. So, it's all about love. Amen? Amen. Love is the thread that weaves through everything that we do as followers of Jesus. Living a life of love is something that we strive to cultivate on a moment-by-moment basis. Because life is nothing more than a moments, a series of moments strung together. And so the central task of living in love is to stay present, to be living in awareness of God's love flowing in us and through us. And the key to that is dying to ourselves. Uh, what keeps us from living a life of love is focusing on ourselves. And, and secular wisdom is now catching up to this idea. It used to be that the common wisdom was that you had to look out for yourself to be successful in business, right? Have fun looking out for number one. But there's this bunch of new studies and new books on the difference between being a giver or a taker in life. And the data is showing that givers, those that live unselfishly, are, are happier and have more successful lives, even in business. So that's another area that God's wisdom is proving correct. I mean, we have always, always known it, but corporate America is, is catching on, um, when we live out of self-interest and we live out of a self-centered perspective, it blocks the flow of God's love flowing through us. And that's why Jesus always said over and over again, if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's about dying to self. When you stop asking, what's in it for me, you find out what's in it for you. And there's, a, there's a better quality of life that is discovered only when you're freed from yourself. When you've abandoned the focus of getting the most out of life through your own striving or on your own. Then you enter into a life that's lived in love, not out of self-centeredness. And we want to develop this as a lifestyle. Not just, you know, when you come to church or when you're thinking about it, but we want love to permeate our marriages, our, our child raising, our jobs, our recreation. So we are looking in this series at this, this thread of love, uh, this theme that, comes, that becomes the through line through everything that we do. And since this is the Christmas season, I thought it'd be good to talk about what is the foundation for the whole thing, and that is the Incarnation. This is the time of year where many people are thinking more than usual about the Incarnation, the miracle of God becoming a human being. So today I want to talk about the community of the Incarnation. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 1, if you've ever read the, the first book of the Bible, you find this rhythm, this pattern where God creates something and then he calls it good. He creates the sky and calls it good, creates the land, calls it good, creates the birds, calls them good, creates vegetables, calls them good. And everything God creates through Genesis 1 is declared to be good. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, and it comes to a screeching halt, because for the first time, God declares something to not be good. 
It says in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God said it is not good that a man should, what? Be alone. It's the first time that phrase is ever used in the Bible. Something in creation is not good. It's solitude. Solitude is good in limited doses. But it's not good for a human to live all alone. And so God then creates another. Now to understand why, um, and it it clearly is the major point of chapter 2 because it breaks that pattern of chapter 1. To understand why it's not good for a human being to be alone, we need to understand that we are made in the image of God. And we need to understand something about God. God, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He's not just a God who loves. Love isn't a verb that God does. His very being is love. And you can't have love without relationship, right? Love only exists in relationship. So God must be in relationship. The Bible describes this as the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not a God who exists in solitude throughout eternity. A lonely God existing in the nothingness of space all by himself. There's only one God, but that one God is being encompassed. He encompasses an eternal, perfect, loving fellowship. All the other monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam and all the spin-offs, posit a God in solitude before creation. But the Bible posits a God in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even before creation. It means that God's very being, his very essence throughout eternity is an eternal, self-giving, unconditional, open, joyful, playful, delightful love. God is perfect relationship. God is perfect love. The dance of the three persons of the Trinity that's been going on throughout eternity and will be going on throughout eternity. In traditional theology, they've tried to define or articulate the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity with a strange word, perichoresis. Perichoresis. If you saw the title of the sermon, you might have been wondering, what is that word? Perichoresis. It means mutual indwelling. Mutual indwelling. It's our feeble way of trying to talk about the beauty of the Trinity. The Father is in the Son and the Spirit. The Son is in the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father and the Son. It's our way of trying to say that they have a relationship in which the total being of one is for the others. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing withheld. It's an unconditional, open, free, self-giving, mutually indwelling relationship. It is the perfection of relationship and love. Now, we are made in the image of that God, which means we are made for that kind of fellowship. And this is why it's not good for a human being to be alone. There's something unnatural and even destructive about living a life of solitude. Solitude in limited doses is very good for the soul. But solitude isn't, as a way of life, isn't. Because we're made in the image of a triune God. We need to have others to be there with us. We long for perichoresis, all of us. We long for perichoresis. We long for a kind of relationship in which nothing is hidden and nothing is withheld. We long to know others and be known by others. We long to understand others and have others understand us. We long to accept others unconditionally and be accepted by others unconditionally. We long to love and to be loved. We long to have someone who understands us. We long to have a perichoresis kind of relationship. We long to have others involved in our life. This is why 
This is why some of the most beautiful words in any language are the words, I understand. I know exactly what you're going through. I hear you. When someone says, me too, there's something inside us that's ministered to. When we believe that another person gets it, then it's, okay, I'm not alone. We all worry that we're kind of trapped inside our own cranium, that we're experiencing life all by ourselves. But when another person says, I know exactly what you mean, I understand, I get it. There's something so profound that happens inside of us. It's why we love to hear people share stories that are similar to our stories, especially if their stories is, is you know, when we feel alone and it's a painful story, that story ministers to us. Someone else knows exactly what it's like to go through this. They tell their story and there's a yes, I'm not, I'm not alone. Someone else knows what it's like to go through a divorce. To, they knows what, they, someone else knows what it's like to be told they have cancer. To know what it's like to be just, you know, have screwed up royally and ruined your life because of it. There might not be solutions, but that's okay. There's other people on the inside of this with me. This is why support groups and 12-step programs work as well as they do. Because we long for perichoresis. This is why we so emphasize small groups in this community. Because we need to be sharing life together. We need other people in on our stories. That's how life was meant to be lived. To have other people who are sharing your stories. Where nothing's hidden and nothing is withheld. And it takes a while to get there for sure. And I know some of you have tried small groups, right? It didn't work out. When you get people, it gets, it gets messy. You know, because we're human. And we all have you know, weird stuff. But I encourage you to stick with it. It's worth it. Because we long for perichoresis. And I'm convinced that this is the power of art and the power of literature, the power of music. When an artist paints a portrait or captures a photograph or expresses something through poetry or through a story, if there's something in you that resonates with that, there's this, yes, this person gets it. Most people, maybe most people on the planet don't. But the emotion expressed in that painting or in that story, it names what I'm feeling. You maybe don't even know the person who did it or the, the, you know, did the painting or the literature, but there's a resonance there. When I first read stuff by Siren Kierkegaard, I felt like he, this guy gets me. And he lived a hundred and some years before I ever came around. But reading his stuff is like, he just expresses a lot of my feelings. The power of art, literature, poetry is that it has the power to, to link souls together. We long for perichoresis because we were created for it. And as much as we need people around us that relate to us and know us, the need ultimately is there as a homing device that our creator put inside of us to drive us to pair a perichoresis kind of relationship with him. And this brings me to the Christmas story. It says in Matthew chapter 1, it says, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. In the first century Jewish culture, nothing could be more offensive than calling a human being divine. And yet, in that first century Jewish culture, Jesus made such an impression on his disciples that they came to the conclusion that in this man right here, God himself was present. In this man, God made our story his story. God himself was present right here. Most people back then, and, and, and most people now, really have this picture of God that's sort of just up there in the heavens, 
You know, the, the gray-bearded old guy. Who's like, he's a little ticked off. He's holding a thunder, you know, lightning bolt in his hand. And he's only happy if he's smiting somebody, you know. He's just this kind of deity far, far away. Or a lot of people today have this kind of picture of, of God as a, a force, a higher power. Kind of a vague, abstract thing. But these early Christians came to the conclusion in the light of their experience of Jesus Christ that God had come to us. God was right here. God himself had come. God is right here in this man. God is right here in this baby. God is right here in this stable. God is right here ministering to the lepers and ministering to the tax collectors and prostitutes. God is with us. This changed everything for the early Christians. It permanently altered God's relationship with us right here and right now. And so it says in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, So then, since we have a, a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testing we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. It's an amazing passage. Jesus Christ, God present on earth, he experienced life like we experienced it, or like we experience it. He made our story part of his story. He understands it from the inside. He's been there. The Bible says he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. It's saying that God has put himself right alongside of us. He's sympathetic to us. Now some might say, okay, sure, he was tempted. Uh, he was tested just like we are. But he never, he never sinned. And so because he never sinned, he may be able to empathize with our good side when we pass the test. But not when we don't pass the test. Not when we fail, not when we fall, not when we sin. He never sinned. So how would he know what it's like to feel guilty? How does he know what it's like to have lost your temper this morning in the minivan on the way over and said things right, you know, that you're right now regretting? He doesn't know. You might be thinking he doesn't know what it's like to have majorly messed up and blown up your wonderful family sky high. He doesn't know the pain, the emptiness, the remorse. He doesn't know what it's like to have the hopelessness of being stuck in an addiction. He doesn't know our shame, doesn't know our guilt, doesn't know our sin and regret. And it's true that he never sinned, that's true. But I submit to you that that doesn't stop him from knowing even the darkest aspects from the inside. Because this is what the cross is all about. This is what Christmas is all about. So the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. This is profound. Take the sum total of all your sin and my sin. Add that to the sum total of everybody on the planet. Add that with the sum total of all the sin throughout history. You got a lot of sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says in second chapter second. Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made him to be sin. So think about that. Sin is the opposite of who God is, right? He's perfect holiness. 
But God made him to be sin so that we, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. I don't know how. I don't know the mechanics of it. I don't understand the metaphysics of it. But somehow, some way, Jesus Christ on the cross experienced my sin from the inside. He knows what it's like to experience guilt. He knows what it's like to experience shame. He knows. Even though he never sinned, he experiences your regret from the inside. He experiences your remorse from the inside. He experiences your rebellion from the inside. He experiences every sin from the inside. He dove into our humanity and allowed all the sin, guilt, and shame of the world to be laid upon him. So he knows. He knows the darkest, most shameful aspects of who you are right now. This is what the incarnation means. God understands you. He is alongside of every thought you think, alongside of every emotion you feel. He knows your secret pain. He knows your secret sin. He knows your wounded memories. He knows you on the inside of your hopes, on the inside of your fears, on the inside of your aspirations, the inside of your disappointments, the inside of your regrets, the inside of your despair. He knows from the inside your sin, guilt, and shame. And that could be very bad news for us. Except that the passage tells us the one who knows all of that is our high priest. He knows all of it. And he's not going away. He knows all of it and he's not using it against us. It's not like a legal court of law where anything you say can and will be used against you. No, he knows it all, but doesn't use it against us. The one who knows me best is on my side. Hallelujah. The one who knows me best is the one who loves me the most. Which means there's no need to hide. We hide because we're afraid. We hide from God. We hide from others. Because there's a conditioning in us that says if people knew or if God knew our darkest, most sinful, ugly aspects, they'd go away. So we hide because we're afraid. And so we instinctively, without even knowing it, we put on our, our best selves. We put on our happy selves. Or we put on our religious selves. Put on our polished selves. But the secret, dark, shamed, wounded, sinful selves, we, we kind of hide that way. And, God, and what God is saying here this morning, if you'll receive it, he's saying you don't need to hide any longer. You don't need to do that. Because I know. I know the very worst about you, and I'm hanging around. I know, I know the very worst about you, and I'm still here, he tells us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm here to stay. I know the worst about you, and it doesn't push me away. And what that means for us is that we can open up to God. Live in a relationship with God. We long to be known and accepted as we are. And what the Lord is saying is, I know you and I love you. So quit pretending. And get very honest with me. Just come clean with me. Be authentic with me. Like I'm amazed by some of the prayers that people pray in the Bible. Job says some nasty things about God. Jeremiah, Isaiah, David, they say some very real, raw things about God. But he puts them in the Bible. Why? Because he loves authenticity. He wants you to be real with him. Put it out in the open. 
He wants a relationship with him where there's nothing hidden and nothing withheld. And you're going to have a hard time getting that relationship with other people if you don't first have it with God. We're transformed when we allow ourselves to be fully loved as we are. It transforms us from where we are into what God knows we can be. Let him love you as you are. Not a pretense self, not a religious self, not, not even a Christian self. Just be you. And get honest. Because there's no need to hide. You know, the feeling of aloneness has nothing to do with whether you're physically alone. It has everything to do with whether or not someone is part, someone's story is part of your story. And whether or not your story is part of someone else's story. You can be in a crowd like this and it makes you feel more alone. And for some people, during the holiday season, these feelings of loneliness increase. It can be maybe that you, you, know, you had a family to go to last year and you don't this year. Man, that's painful. Or maybe you haven't had a family to go to for the last 10 years, but you still remember the family you used to go to. Or it can be that you have a family to go to, but you feel very alone in that family. And the superficiality of it all, it makes you feel more alone there. There are some of you that, some people that feel in this time of year when all the families are getting together and you see all the decorations and the movies and the music and it just makes you feel like you're just alone in the world. Like you're outside of the window looking in at that nice family having that Christmas celebration. You're on the outside looking in. What you've got to know is that you're not alone. You've never been alone. You never will be alone. And you never need to feel alone if you acknowledge that you have one who loves you more than you can imagine with you. Maybe you've been rejected and you've been abandoned and that's why there's all this fear and this facade in your life. But you got to know that he will never leave you or forsake you. That's why he came. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. He wants you to know him as he knows you. He wants that relationship with you to work both ways. That's why he says in John 15, abide in me and I in you. That's what's going on there. What God wants is for his relationship with you to mirror the relationship that he has within the Trinity. What God is doing is inviting us in on the triune dance. The three persons of the Trinity say, join us in this dance of perfect love. Join us in this dance. So he wants you to make him the focus of your life. And like I said, life is nothing more than a series of nows that are strung together. On a now-by-now basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, he wants you to know him the way he knows you. He's not interested in you accumulating a lot of facts about him. He doesn't want you to know about him. He wants, you, he wants you to know him. There's a world of difference between me knowing all the statistics about my wife and me knowing my wife, right? Like if you ask me, what's your wife like? I was like, well, she has dark hair. You'd be like, hmm? No, 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 what's she like? Um, she has blue eyes. You would think, I'm not sure you know your wife. Right? There's a huge difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. God wants you to know him. And that happens as we, on a moment-by-moment basis, pursue him. Seek me and you'll find, the Bible says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is how we come to know him, by seeking him. We don't just seek him on Sunday mornings and then forget about it till the next Sunday. No, make the point of every day and... Make the point of every moment, know him better. 
As you live in love, you become more and more aware of his love flowing to you and through you on a moment-by-moment basis. You begin to sense his presence. You come to know his heart for people. Cultivate on a moment-by-moment basis an attitude of openness to him. Share with him your thoughts and your feelings. That's why the Bible says pray without ceasing. We are created for perichoresis, and that will be the eternal reality of those who have put their faith in the Lord. Amen. If you would, close your eyes to pray. I just want to ask this question. Are you hiding? Are you hiding from God? And as simply as I can put it, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. So will you just right now admit it to him? He knows it already. Don't pretend. Come out of hiding. Are you longing for perichoresis? Invite him in on your life. Know that you're not alone. You've never been alone and you'll never be alone. And will you pursue him? Maybe you know a lot about God, but the question today is, do you know him? Do you really know him? Do the work that needs to be done. Confess. Come out of hiding. Resolve in your heart right now that your relationship with him is going to be open and honest. Tell him what you're experiencing throughout the day. Pursue relationship with him. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Holy Spirit, draw us close to you. Holy Spirit, open us up. Heal our wounds. Open our eyes to see that we're not alone. Help us to see and understand and experience that Jesus Christ is closer to us than than our closest friend. Holy Spirit, as as we leave here, help us to remain mindful of this. Not to be sucked into the mindless hustle and bustle of the season and of the world, but to stay centered in Jesus Christ. Aware and honest and open and free. Holy Spirit, teach us how to dance the dance of the Trinity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Two words, real quick. If you've, ever, if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ and you're interested in doing that, becoming a believer, becoming a kingdom person, getting saved, up here there'll be people who would love to explain to you what that's all about. And so I would encourage you to come forward, take a minute and find out what that's all about. Also, the prayer team will come forward. Uh, if you're here and you have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come forward and spend some time in prayer. God bless you. Go out, love radically, meet people in the lobby, sign up for a fellowship group, take the love of Jesus Christ out into the world that desperately needs it. Amen.